Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'm Paul Church. I'm Managing Director of Interquest. We're a tech, data and digital recruitment business. Uh, and this is our community podcast slash webinar, People, Culture and <laughs> Tech, where each week we invite a subject matter expert in to discuss a topic which is uh, relevant to our businesses. And the idea really is just to share as many ideas and experiences as possible with a view to hopefully making all our businesses just a little bit better. So very, very happy today to have um, Shireen Daniels with me as we're going to discuss racism in the workplace, how to identify it, tackle it and stamp it out. Now, Shireen, before I kind of asked you to do, give us a bit of an intro, I think and I mentioned <coughs> on our first chat that um, I'm really, really happy to have you on here because I've followed your movement for the last kind of four or five months, both from kind of what you're, what you're putting out there, but also from a social media perspective, the following you've created. So I just think you've, you've nailed it on so many levels. So it's so well done. And I, I appreciate you for that. Um, but look, thank you so much for joining us. And it'd be great to just, if you could give our audience a bit of an intro to yourself. Yeah, sure thing. Well, hello, everybody. <coughs> thank you for tuning in. So I'll try in a couple of minutes because I'm conscious we want to get into the good stuff, right? So my, um, I'm Shireen. I live in Gravesend, Kent. So not the most uh, sexiest of places, even though for my fellow North American fans, they all have this idea that I live in some super sexy apartment in the middle of London. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, Gravesend. And they're like, where? And I was like, don't worry about it. It's Kent, darling. Garden of England. That's all you need to know. And I've got two children. So I've got two daughters, a 12-year-old and a two-year-old. My 12-year-old is black and my two-year-old is biracial. So I'm just, that's just kind of giving you the start of, I guess, where I come from and I guess the fire for which I do what I do. So my story started last year in the summer of 2020, as we all know. So for me, it wasn't the murder of George Floyd, per se. It was the video of Amy Cooper in Central Park. So I don't know if you remember her, but, you know, the white woman who was walking her dog and got told by a black guy that the dog is not meant to be there. And she basically weaponized the color of her skin um, when she called the police. So that was my trigger, I guess. And it was the time that I reflected on... 17 years of corporate experience that you know I've been in my background is HR so you know have worked for companies like Cafe Nero, Green King, Gala Coral, Carphone Warehouse, did some stuff in the Middle East as as my first job so and I recognize that for 17 years plus my school years I put a bracket around university I had spent a lot of time shedding layers of my identity to assimilate into majority white spaces and I only realized how much I had internalized racism because I'm one of these people that always carry on. You know, I've done well, got two degrees, you know, I've done all sorts of stuff in my corporate career. I never talked about race or racism publicly because I never wanted to be the black woman talking about race and racism. And guess what? I'm now the black woman talking about race and racism every day. The irony is not lost on me. But at that time, I just thought when I saw, you know, what was going on in the States and in particular, the narrative in the UK, which is racism was an American problem. I first thought, how is it that we are in this space where all of my friends, my family, we talk about racism and and prejudice and discrimination all the time, not publicly, but we do behind closed doors. How is it I can be living in a country that I'm born in that literally wants to deny racism? So that was like a big driver. And then the second was, where has my silence got me? Where has it got me realistically? So I came out of the end of the corporate career, kind of like crawling out almost. Um, And I thought all those years of staying silent, of turning the other cheek, of being grateful for opportunities, all of that stuff. I just thought, where has it got me? Where has it got people who look like me? You know, if this is still happening. I recorded a video in my bedroom. Didn't really think anything of it. I wasn't really doing video at the time. Yeah, wasn't really doing it. And just ended up talking for 20 minutes. Had a bit of a breakdown about sharing it publicly. Um, so didn't sleep the night before, was basically, you know, said to my partner, like, I'm going to have to just close my HR consultancy that I'd only just started because nobody's going to want to work with me. Nobody's going to want to associate with me because I'm now the black woman talking about racism and playing the victim. And he said, if it's upsetting you that much, why are you doing it? Because I said, I have to. You know, I said, I can't not do this and I'm going to pay the price. And in that moment, I recognised, and I think Paul and I touched on this when we first started speaking, is that, you know, they always talk about one of the things you have to confront when you're trying to progress is you have to confront your biggest fears. And we can all probably, if I said, what scares you? We could all probably rattle off like two or three things, right? 
in that moment, I recognised that the reason why I was in essence having a breakdown about sharing a video about my experiences that wasn't a particularly emotive video per se is because my biggest fear that I would be rejected by people, but specifically by white people. At that time, I felt deeply ashamed and embarrassed almost that me is that because anyone sees me you see my personality you're thinking oh my god yeah she's like nobody can tell Shereen nothing but I'd recognized that I'd spent all of my corporate life trying to make sure that I was accepted because acceptance meant opportunity it meant I wouldn't be overlooked even though I was overlooked anyway and that's the irony but I'd spent so much trying to make sure that I wasn't too black, that I didn't bring my culture. You know, my background is the Caribbean. My mom's Jamaican. My dad's from Guyana, South America. So like I steeped myself in my culture at home, but I left it at the reception desk when I stepped into these offices. So that moment, 31st of May was my first video and I shared it on LinkedIn on the 1st of June. Now, on the 1st of June, I can categorically tell you nobody was really paying attention to who Shereen Daniels was, what was in, you know, I was known as the person who worked in HR, doing a little bit of speaking, nothing too crazy. I think I had about 3,000 LinkedIn connections, so, you know, nothing mad. And I recorded the video and then just kept on talking. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm here now, do you know what I mean? So I'm going to let everybody know how vexed and upset and annoyed I am and you know, I challenged leaders, I challenged individuals, I challenged fellow members of the black community, I challenged myself really hard. In essence, I just want everybody to fix up, you know, and I carried on recording videos. So one video became 20, became 40, became 100 on 100 consecutive days, bar two weeks off, had my story featured in Forbes, became one of LinkedIn's top voices. I now have over 38,000 followers on LinkedIn. Um, so not bad considering what I talk about every day, right? But in this space, in a weird way, I have found not only my voice, but a way to stay true to who I am, say the things that I want to say, that I wish I had said when I was working within these organisations, but affect change in my way, right? So I do these live broadcasts with, you know, NASCAR drivers, current serving military people, very, very senior people watch and listen. You know, I've got joint chief staff of command of this in the US and this with the presidential thing over here but I'm still showing up playing my reggae music if I want to play my reggae music my little new jack swing my R&B from the 90s which is what I like and I'm doing this my way and I feel very strongly about this subject I do run a company we specialize in anti-racism my goal and you know with the rest of the company is to unlock over a million conversations about race by 2025. We're currently at about 50,000. So I track that every three months. And I'm here to talk to you all to answer questions. And I guess just give my perspective on how we can even start to tackle this properly. But what does meaningful and intentional action look like? Because there's way too much performative and tokenistic nonsense going on out there. And I'm sure if Paul has whispered into the ear of some of you, I'm nothing if not 100% real either. So what I don't do is soften it for anybody's comfort because my thing is it's disrespectful to the seriousness of racism. Um, the other dynamic, I mentioned my two children, but the other piece is, is that I'm a direct descendant of enslaved people on my mum's side. So there's very deep ties to this subject that I now draw upon to, you know, to do the work that I do. And for whatever reason, I just have people listening from all over the world so I thought I'd sit in the pocket you know <laughs> and just to get on with it I do enjoy what I do but I care very deeply about this and so therefore I pull no punches which is probably why so many people pay attention even if they're, they're kind of listening to me and like you know like, oh god what oh god she's, she's talking about white supremacy again yes I am you know so we've got all that going on so I hope that helps in five minutes just give you some context I guess as to how I got here super regular but just disturbing the peace every day you know thanks Shereen thanks for the intro and that, absolutely it's an invitation to anybody who's tuning in today if you want to ask a question throughout pop your hand up and you can get involved or share an experience that's absolutely fine Shereen do you mind just telling us a bit about specifically the services you're providing to businesses right now via your company give us a few yeah. examples of what you're actually going in and doing yeah so part of what I always say is that you cannot fix what you don't understand right and we cannot solve what we don't talk about so we have kind of four or five key things that we do one is I basically go in and talk to executive leadership teams about this subject with the purpose being 
not for them to have encyclopedic knowledge about racism, but for them to truly understand the nuances and the context of racism and what it isn't, you know? Got to move away from thinking racism just about being called the N-word and overt behaviour. There's a whole other piece to it, which is why we're here. So I help them understand that so they can make informed decisions about where they put their money and where they put their time and resources. And even if they want to step into the fray with this, because believe me, not every organisation wants to do something about this. So we run listening forums, which is, you know, about amplifying the voices of those most impacted. And that will be black colleagues, minoritised colleagues and letting them share their lived experiences without fear of retribution, without fear of having to prove to their colleagues that racism is a thing. That's really important to me. We run an accelerator to help people come up with racial equity plans in 30 days. So there's a structure, myself and um, an assistant professor in DC. So the two of us co-lead this. She is a retired colonel from the US Air Force who specializes in DEI. So you've got the two of us there. So we do that for organizations. And that's usually for like HR people or leads who are involved in some way, shape or form of addressing this issue. So you don't have to be a specialist. You just have to care. And then you come, we have a good time, we play music, we teach you some things, and then you come out with a racial equity plan at the end. We also do racial equity coaching specifically for HR teams, if I'm honest. Um, So where there are issues of race or racial discrimination, they've got kind of a safe space to kind of just check some things with some coaches who have the lived experience. And as you mentioned, Paul, I am known as the, the content queen. So Um, A lot of people license some of my video based content, either the workshops or I create bespoke content for organisations predominantly on video and talking about various aspects of racism. On on your LinkedIn, uh, the first headline on your profile is you're an anti-racism advocate. And it's very clear in your profile that you mentioned that you're you're not diverse, you're not inclusion. Did you originally have to put that in there or did you originally put that in there when you set up set up this brand? Or was it something you felt you needed to do because you started getting pulled in the wrong direction as to what you were looking to kind of make happen? That's a really good question because it's always the bit that everyone goes, oh, my God, because it's like it's so anti the movement almost, isn't it? Right. So we all talk a lot about inclusion and belonging. It's not to say I am anti what those things stand for. The point that I made, and it was was a very deliberate point, is that this issue of racism isn't a diversity issue. It isn't an inclusion issue and it isn't a belonging issue. Let's call it what it is racism until we can call it what it is we can't fix it so we wrap things around what is palatable and inclusion and belonging sounds really soft you know nobody's going to object to talking about inclusion and belonging probably not going to get the budget and the resource necessarily to do what you need to do but it's it's a nice feel-good thing racism isn't it's traumatic it's deep it's nuanced it's complicated so when I did that what I was saying to people is is that You also have to remember that diversity and inclusion actually came from the civil rights movement. It was about black people not being discriminated in the workplace. But what happened is the what about isms came in. So what about this group? What about that group? And people's discomfort in prioritizing black people and closing the gaps meant that this thing that came out of the 1960s out of America, out of civil rights, got hijacked for everybody else. And so The very people it was meant to help are the people who not only got left behind, but also it's to the extent that we're also even blocked out of having solutions put in place to address that because we're still uncomfortable to talk about racism. Does does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, as you mentioned, D&I is such a huge topic now for, for a lot of businesses. But I think that have you found that just using that word racism is something that scares businesses from actually tackling it themselves? Of course it does. They're like, oh, can we use a different phrase? And I'm like, no, we're not, no, no, we're not. So I always like, it's, it, it is a bit of a standing joke with um, some of the boards that I do. But I say to them, like, you know, part of my job with you is to get you to say black, white supremacy, white privilege without flinching. And I said, it doesn't mean look at me and don't blink because, you know, they go, oh, oh, because part of it is we have to be comfortable with calling it what it is. I know we're going we're gonna to mention in, about this bloody race report from the government, but one of the things that I am also keen on is the fact that we have to go back to being specific. If we are talking about black people, black women, black disabled people, black transgender, call them what it is. Let's not hide behind acronyms, fame, ethnic minorities. Let's not call anyone who isn't white diverse. 
Let's stop doing that because it assumes white is normal. Let's talk about diversifying your business because we are all diverse. Let's talk about minoritized colleagues, not minority colleagues. You know, so some of what I do is about language as well. And, you know, it takes practice because I had to learn as well. I'm moving away from black now. My latest thing is I'm, I'm now, you know, a member of the African diaspora because I've now reclaimed my African roots, apparently. You know, so it's not all kind of like deep in the depths. But to do this work intentionally is you have to question everything. Even as a black woman, I have to question. I've had to learn. One of the things that I particularly with CEOs is that I have to say to them is you've got to be okay now with recognizing that you're now the student because you've spent your whole career getting to your position based on you knowing all the answers and in this you don't know all the answers and that's okay but what you can't do is pretend to know the answers because your pride and ego won't allow you to sit listen and work out what's going on so you can imagine that conversation it's like silence now when they're off on the journey it's brilliant you know and off they go and they, you know, it's the JFDI and just get on with it and they're given budget and resource. But you have to take people on that journey. And going back to my point about not disrespecting the subject, because that's one of our guiding principles, is the second I water it down for the comfort of, of white people, for the comfort of even black people or other minoritized individuals, I'm disrespecting the seriousness of the subject because my ancestors were enslaved. And let me tell you, if they thought that, you know, curtailing to that was going to get them off the plantation field. They would have done it. It's not going to work. So why would I think with all the technology and everything that we have to hand that by me pandering to comfort, by talking about diversity and and as a euphemism for racism is going to help my great, 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 great grandmother whose parents were taken from East Kenya as enslaved people. So everything for me is, is about being intentional and sitting in the discomfort because you will come out of it eventually, you know, but if we're still learning, that's massively important. So that's why I always make that point. And we've still got a lot of cleaning up to do. I think somebody in the, in the chat, I just saw it flashed up, said, absolutely, we need to stop referring to anyone who isn't white as diverse. We, you see it all over the shop. You know, we need more diverse people. It's like, no, you need to diversify your business. Black people, Asian people, Chinese people, we are not the diverse hires in this because you are reaffirming white supremacy, which says white cisgendered men is not, is the baseline of comparison. And people go, oh my God, I didn't think about it like that. And I go, but yeah, so that's the bit of unpicking because you kind of go, oh my goodness, like what assumptions am I making with language, you know? So that's another angle of why it's important to be intentional and to know that this is the nuances and the context that is missed when you take diversity and inclusion as a broad subject, because they're not talking about that. I saw, you, I saw a post you made a, a few days ago regarding uh, the talk around um, stopping using the BAME term. And you, you mentioned people looking for something generic, they can say global majority. Right. <laughs> and everyone, oh, Shireen, I just think we should all be human beings. I was like, yeah, you weren't saying that when we were called ethnic minorities, though, were you? You know, so again, it's this idea of acknowledging in some people, because it isn't in everyone, I promise you, but in some people, there is racism is steeped in fear and insecurity that's how come it it, it keeps perpetuating and my partner's Estonian so it affectionately I always say he's as white as they come do you know what I mean so he's you know I can probably see his Viking connections if I look not too you know so that is how much it is and I remember very early on when we had a conversation and he said you know I think one of the issues that that white people have around this is that we're scared that black people and he didn't use the term global majority, I did. But basically that black and brown people, if we banded together, we would overthrow white people. And I was like, do you really think that? He said, and, he, and it's really funny. He was like, because there's almost a tribe, but there's a, an eight. And he was saying that I wonder how much of us feel a little bit inferior. And he started listing off some things. And I never even thought about it from that point of view. And obviously, like logically, we would all go, that's not the case. But one of the things that has allowed racism as a system to keep turning isn't the Donald Trump's or the Tony Sewell's of this world, you know, to just ignore that. It's not that. It's our silence and our apathy because racism only needs our compliance to keep working. The second we start questioning and we're starting to get into dismantling systems and language, that's what disrupts it. So actually our discomfort, all of us, is because we've been conditioned by a system that we never created, but we never questioned the foundation. So it's kept on turning. That's why we're still here 400 years later, you know? 
Absolutely. Um, we, we've got a question that's come through in the private chat, so I'll throw straight to this. So which specific thing do you think is the biggest problem that needs to be fixed first within UK workforce around racism? Is it the initial no offer for minorities? Is it workplace bullying? Is it the glass ceiling? It's a big question. but Oh, my goodness. Oh. Do you know what I think? It, like This is purely my perspective. It's not based on any academia. I think... The biggest issue that we have, this is not just about racism, so I'm going, to broad, I'm going to broaden it out. The biggest issue that we have in organisations is no matter what they say, our structures are based on command and control. So it's power, right? So when you think about racism, it's a power dynamic. So racism as, as a system is basically saying that we have created levers across our health, our education, our employment, culture and media to ensure that there are favourable outcomes for white people. So no matter what anybody says, we do live in a racialized society because we have perpetuated it to such an extent that white is considered normal, white is considered good, right? When you also remember that the, the label of black isn't a label that black people, we never called ourselves black, like ancient times, we were called the Moors. Now, there's nothing in the language, is there? It doesn't mean it, the Moors, okay, right. So you'll have, you know, Europeans, Anglo-Saxons and the Moors. It doesn't mean anything. So if you're going to start creating hierarchies, you have to lay meaning into certain words, hence black. Even though our skin colour, I remember having a conversation with my oldest daughter when she was six and she was like, I don't understand why people keep calling me, my, me black because I'm actually brown. That's the point, right? So... From a workplace perspective, you've got to understand that the structures, and this is why I talk about how racism manifests itself in the workplace, because the structures of the workplace, you have very senior people command who use control. It doesn't matter how autonomous they are. So what you have is always this dynamic of if I use my voice and speak out against racism, bullying, sexual harassment, you know, any of the isms, right, that we, that we have in the organisation, how is that going to affect my position? because I don't have the power, I don't have the rank, and in some instances, I don't have the privilege according to my skin colour. So it's very radical, I know this, and I don't, I don't think I'll ever see this in my lifetime, but I think until we properly democratise organisations and flatten power structures and then make it psychologically safe for people to share their lived experiences, to speak out against things being wrong, this is why we keep having the Me Too movement. This is why we have issues with racism. This is why we have issues with fraud and particularly corporate fraud is because we create these environments and these cultures where people are afraid to be the dissenting voice, even if the organisation is doing something fundamentally wrong. Does that make sense? I don't, I don't know who asked the question, but that's just my like the utopian view of the world. And I think it's the power structures that make this so difficult. It's what makes tackling structural racism so difficult because as black people, we're not in positions of power. And as we can see by the Tony Sewell report, I'm, I've called it Tony Sewell, it's not even his report, but I've, I've labelled this all on him and his, and his cronies as the people around him, is you can still be a victim and a perpetuator of a system. As black people, our complicit, our silence, as, as Asian people, as people of different ethnic minorities, we can still be victims of xenophobia, of racism, of this, of this, of this, but we can also still perpetuate it through our silence and also being agents of that, if that makes sense, you know, without going like sounding too conspiracy theory, but you know what I mean, because you're, you're not questioning. So you're going with the narrative from those on top because you're thinking about the power and the privilege that you want to have. So that's your gateway in. You know, fantastic. Thanks, Shreen. I've got a, I've got a thumbs up from the person who asked. Oh, does it? Oh, fabulous. Because you know, what? I'll, I'll go off on a tangent. I'll take you so deep. You'll be like, oh my god, get me out of the well, Shireen. I want to come back up for a breather. <laughs> oh, no. So we've got we've got another question in the chat. Before I go to Naeem, who's got his hands up, so hang hang tight, Naeem. Danny, uh, Danny, great to have you on, Danny. How are you doing? Good. So Danny's asked, how do you feel about the latest race report on the fight against racism? It seems to have polarised in the UK. Some people thinking it does expose racism and comes up with solutions and also focuses on other factors, whereas other people feel the report is divisive and deliberately ignoring institutional racism. What do you think? Now, Shereen, I know you've had a week of answering this question. I imagine <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask it as well, but it's... Don't worry. It we'll Danny, so we'll what's your thoughts? 
So Danny, I'm of the latter, right? So I think it's an example of political gaslighting. Now, equally, what I will say is, I don't know how we can still be surprised by that report bearing in mind that Boris Johnson stood up and said he he doesn't believe that England or Britain has a problem with racism. So we kind of knew it was coming. All of the people involved in the report have already said publicly that they don't believe that institutional racism exists. And they're basically saying they're horrible people. And um, I don't know if anybody has seen the report in detail. Unfortunately, I printed it out and it was a complete waste of paper. But anyway, one of the things that they say, and this is a, this is a good example, is they do talk about overt racism. But what they say is the reason why people are mean to each other is because they feel social pressure. Right. I'm gonna shoot, that's just an example. So going back to my point about respecting the seriousness of the issue of how many people have fought and died for this issue, knowing what's happened last year, knowing that um, another thing that obviously I know this because of the work I do, but the UN put out a, like a global assembly call in December last year for countries to come together and dismantle racism. They came up with like a nine, it's on my social media thing, but they came up with like a nine page plan, all stuff that makes sense. UK, Canada, US, Guyana, so like my half-birth country, the Netherlands, Germany, another, there's 14 countries altogether all said no. So 14 countries said no, I think 40 countries didn't vote, and everybody else said yes, right? So at a country level, we keep saying we must do better, we'll find different ways, we haven't, the solutions have already been there, we just don't want to do the solutions that will dismantle power structures. So what we do, and the report is a classic example, it's full of what I call transactional actions. Transactional actions and recommendations are those which try and fix people, right? So here's a therapist, here's a sponsorship scheme, here's a mentorship scheme, here's this, here's this, here's this. And actually, a lot of organisations do take a transactional approach to trying to level the playing field from an equity point of view. What they ignored is transformational change which is about systems it's about policies because the data does say they've interpreted the data in a particular way which proves the point you know there's lies lies and statistics right but you can interpret the data lots of different ways but there is so much data out there that already says um, that black and minoritized people in the UK have disproportionate unfair outcomes across almost every fabric of society there's more black women dying in childbirth than anybody else. There's, we're nine times more likely to be stopped and searched. We're this, we're this, we're this, we're this. We've, we don't even need to go, to go there. So to deny that that's institutional racism and do what I call victim blaming, which is to say it's because of where you live, it's because you don't have a dad, you over there, you know, it's because you've got no aspirations, it's because, it's because, ignores the question of why they are in that situation in the first place, which is where institutional racism comes in. So all they've done is gone, we, rather than go down here, we're going to start here. And we're only going to focus on transactional stuff because guess what? It doesn't fundamentally change the fabric of society. You just put more money in community centres, more money in youth work, but you're fundamentally not changing the policing system. You're not changing the legal system. You're not changing employment system. They're not looking at the fact that there are plenty of qualified people in frontline operations if you go to certain organisations. But the higher up you go, there's no black people, or sometimes even they might have like one Asian person and claim that they've hit the quota for diversity, which is where you get to when you're not specific. So all of these things means that it's deliberate and it's an attempt to keep it quiet, which is clearly massively backfired. And you can tell they're now reverting back to Okay, because Boris Johnson's already saying, well, you know, number 10, I don't think we signed off this report because actually I think there's some things that aren't quite right. So he's already trying to throw crumbs, transactional crumbs, because if you keep throwing these transactional crumbs that we keep accepting and organisations are guilty of doing this as well, because that's all we know, then you're not changing the systems that are leading to the outcomes in the first place. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'll, Danny, I'll did that ask. help? Sorry, I know you're not on video. Did that even answer your question? I could have just said it's bullshit, but I wanted to give you <laughs> I wanted to give you a full <laughs> explanation of why I think it's bullshit. Absolutely. Um, I, I was going to ask you, um, I mean, I've not seen anybody support that report on social media or anyone I've spoken to. So no, the people, like, they're, out, they're, they're out there. There are people. I'm sure, oh, yeah, absolutely, I'm sure they are. I, I yeah. suppose I was going to ask, all I've seen is backlash. Do you think that backlash will have any kind of serious impact in terms of them 
know, doing a new report or just completely discrediting the whole thing? Do you think it will get more than crumbs or not? No, do you know what I think? I think, and look, this is where you can really see my personality a little bit here, is I just think the world we live in is all about power plays, right? So you can concede power without conceding real power. So they will find ways to look performative, like do stuff without fundamentally changing anything. I do think where, dare I say, it's had a positive impact. I know this, which feels really weird to say, but the amount of what I call armchair critics within, um, particularly the black community, I can't talk for any other community, but particularly within the black community, it's now forced them to get off their armchair and get in the fray and, and recognize that we can't rely on the government. We can't, it's almost like we can't look to everybody else to make the changes that we want to see. Like we've got to step in now and, and step up. So I'm forever now being asked to, you know, come and talk to this group or that group of people that are now coming together. You know, I have very influential black people now who didn't want to talk to me last year, by the way, but you know what, clearly I, I don't hold grudge. I'm like, where were you? But anyway, you know, who are now saying, like, whatever you need, Shireen, you know, I'm here. So sometimes, you know, in anything, it does take a few people. It's like ripples. So my, my job, everything that I do is to be, is to have a ripple effect. You know, I have a massive Jewish community that support, that listen, because obviously the Black struggle is very similar. There's some real interesting parallels, even in history, with the Jewish community. And so I've, that was from very early days. You know, I spoke to the Jewish Leadership Council. They've literally said, whatever I need, Shireen, you know, what, you, know you, you, you call us. So this isn't about skin colour. This is about fairness. And I think what the report has done is demonstrated to many people what living in denial looks like. And they've gone, I don't want to be part of a society. Even if I know I'm a beneficiary because I'm a white person or I'm a white man or I'm a white middle-aged man that's like, you know, in inverted commas, feeling the heat I want to be part of the solution so I need to find different ways of, of, of doing that and I think that's what's changed the flip side of that is you do have people coming out and saying you know and how can people say you know like working class white boys and you know so again they've pitted race against class white working class people that's not a, that's like apples and melons it's like it's not a fair com comparison but because they know that if push comes to show if you're living in a white majority company, you have the country, you have to appeal to the white majority. And the best way to do that is to make the white majority feel like they're under attack. And what better way to do that is to make them feel like their children are under attack because of this. So, you know, for anyone who looks at the report and thinks, well, it's just a case of data, it's in years to come, I promise you, like our kids will be looking at this as a tool for propaganda. That's my personal view. So, you know, don't quote me on that one. But that's my personal view, because it's to portray a particular narrative to maintain the status quo rather than addressing the wrongs, you know, Windrush, all of the stuff. Look at the black and Asian people that came over, Southeast Asian people that came over to rebuild the country after the First and Second World War. And then look how they got treated and then look how they structurally got treated through the burning of their records and the fact that they then had to, and their children then had to be deported because they couldn't prove it. Because if that is not structural racism, I like literally, I'm thinking, what planet is anybody living on? But it isn't about whether it exists or not. The question is always about whether people are willing to do anything. And it's the same question for society, it's the same for organizations, you know. But like, are you willing to do something about it? And no, it's going to be a bit uncomfortable, but you'll get through it and you'll be better off on the other side, you know. Yeah, understood. Thanks, Shireen. Uh, Naeem, you've been very patient. Please do. Sorry, Naeem. You know, I'm question. here, like, like preaching, aren't I? Sorry. Uh, no, no problem. Uh, hi, Shireen. Hi, Paul. We have an odd question for you, Shireen. How do you stay motivated? And the reason I ask that is because what you said earlier in your intro about, you know, after George Floyd and you finding your voice, um, I felt the same way last year. So I felt like I found my voice. I was doing a lot more stuff on LinkedIn and... Uh, at work, I got involved in and then created an ERG on the back of it. But what I find is, is that I feel like a lot of the time I'm mourning and trying to get people to understand and, you know, talk about, I've, I've uh, drafted a white supremacy article, which I just can't publish just because it's going to be, oh, uh, he's mourning again. Listen, oh, no, I can't blow it up, name. I can't blow it up. I can't blow it up. I'll bring you loads of likes and followers. Like, they'll love it. I think there's two things. So one, I'm very well aware that I'm outside of the corporate structure now. So, and that's partly why I um, like sing like a canary most days is because I can. Do you know what I mean? I answer to nobody else. Like the worst case is like, you know, 
somebody said to me, but aren't you worried about not getting any clients? I'm like, I'm not being funny with the subject matter that I talk about. They ain't going to come anyway. Do you know what I mean? Because it's I deal with racism. So it's not, you know, it's either, <laughs> they either want it or they don't want it. You know, it's not a lot I can do there. But one of the decisions I made a few months ago, actually, is because as you can imagine, like I get dragged, I get tagged in all sorts. And then, you know, BBC Radio want me to talk about this and want me to talk about that. What I made a decision to do, Naeem, is I am not here to validate whether there is the existence of racism. That's not my job. If you want to understand the context and the nuance, come talk to me. If you want to understand what racist ideology looks like and white supremacy, where it came from, age of reasoning, age of enlightenment, because it's a bit of a history tour there, come and talk to me. If you want to talk about being part of the solution, come and talk to me. I am not putting the energy anymore into trying to get you to understand my lived experiences or my fellow black and brown brothers and sisters, because that's energy that we cannot put into being part of the solution. Now, when you make that decision, there will be people who will fall by the wayside, i.e. they will stop engaging with you. But what you've got to remember is, unfortunately, through fear as human beings, when we don't understand stuff and we're scared about things, we desperately want it to not be so. So when they're trying to engage you in these sorts of conversations or trying to gaslight you or trying to make out like you're complaining or you're you're moaning because you're the only voice. And that's probably indicative of the fact that you're probably one of the few people talking about this, which is why you're now internalizing that silence from everybody else, is there are many people who are doing what you're doing. And I guess that is partly why I'm partly so noisy not always because I'm actually quite introverted so that's why the video thing works well for me because I I don't my energy isn't drained by physically being around lots of people all the time but I also recognize how lonely it is and I remember how I felt when I was like doing all these you can see like you can see in my face I was like you know not happy but nobody paid me any attention and I'm not saying I do this now because people pay me attention but I carried on I didn't care if it was just my mum and my best mate who saw my video I didn't care because My thing was, I've been silent for all this time. I'm going to keep going. And what happens is consistency, if whatever you're in anything, like business sense, you know, whatever, consistency breeds you a certain level of credibility and opportunity. And the opportunity comes because people see, oh my God, Naeem, he's talking talking my language. So I always talk about, if you're, um, if you, some people will listen to me in this conversation think, Jesus Christ, like, never. No, I, I, you know, I wouldn't have. But other people go, she's my vibe because she's not corporate. She's informal. She's saying it like it is. That's what we need. So one of the things that you maybe have to think about is how you've internalized all of this for all of your life to the point that almost you think it's complaining. You're not complaining. You're trying to change things. Yeah. Right. So that's something about in your mind going, no, you've got to hold on to the fact that you're actively being part of the solution. You're not an armchair critic. So you're actively trying to be part of the solution. And what I will also say is because a very personal thing is that if you posted that article about white supremacy, the question that you have to ask yourself is what am I most afraid of? What am I most afraid of? And go through that, go through that process. Because we all have to do it in very different ways. I always say this, even as people of colour, global majority people, we have been marginalised and ha- we have been minoritised. And if somebody says yes, when we're told we're complaining, but again, you keep the labels that people give you because you make a choice. So you can choose not to accept that. You know, some people say, Jesus Christ, you're not going to give it a rest. No, no, I'm not giving it a rest. No, I give it a rest. Because I've got to be able to look in the mirror and say to my kids in 20 years time, when they go, what were you doing in the civil rights movement of the 2020s? Because that's what this period will be referred to. How can I turn around to them and go, I was too scared to do this and I didn't do that? That's a personal thing. I'm not saying everybody's in that space, but that's, that's what keeps me going. I did a live broadcast the other day and he is the most senior person who looks after the African continent militaries for the US command, right? I gave him a hard time. I did two things. I was like, no, I'm not hearing you. I don't, don't say it, Sergeant Major Thresher. I don't see colour. Oh man, right, I've got to talk to you about this. You know, and off we go. But when you hold tight to what's important to you, your values and your integrity, the people who aren't aligned will fall off, but the people who will are, you'll attract them. So what I say to you is if you're dimming your shine, so to speak, because you're worried about the voices that are going to say this, you're also stopping people who could support, could bolster, could amplify you from finding out what you're about and ultimately helping you. Do you know what I mean? Because there's people watching 
but there's also people watching to go, am I safe with Naeem? And they, they're going to look to see how consistent you are with the stuff that you do. Yeah. And then you'll find that they'll start talking to you and they'll tell you stuff and you're like, but I didn't even know anybody clocked that. And they go, no, I did clock that. You know, does that help? Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful. I think it's mainly about, for me, it's about getting senior engagement, which, I, you know, we're getting there. But it is just the fact that so we've got this listening forum as well every couple of weeks. And I look at the attendance and I think that's almost my KPI to myself about whether or not it's doing what we want it to do. Um, and it's fairly consistent. No, but, but do you know what, uh, though? Conversely, if you take some of the things that people don't measure is we don't measure discomfort as a positive data point. Yeah. So, do you know what I mean? So actually, sometimes you'll find is that if you're ha- if people are like, oh my God, this made me feel really uncomfortable, you're doing the right thing. Okay. It's a positive data point. I know because it it's counterintuitive because we're so used to the gasation of, oh my God, more people means it's great. But if you're making, and I still know there's still people that comment on my posts and go, Shireen, I find your post really difficult to read. Like it really challenges me. It's the best compliment that anyone can ever give me because I know I'm forcing them to think like, oh, people are always going to love what I do. I can trip over and go, oh my God, Shireen, it's the best thing ever. But my, that's not what I'm here to do. You know, my job is to get you to think so you can at least do. So sometimes you you might just have to recalibrate what does success look like for you and just know that you might not get the immediate markers that we're used to of yeah. going, you're doing a great job. But I'm telling you, you're doing a good job. So Shireen said, I'm doing a good job. So I just got to hear Shireen's voice in my head and keep on going because she said, when I'm 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 <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? And Paul's recording this, so you can just take this shot, can't you? You just take this slip and go, this is for me, Paul. I'm having this bit. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for the question, Noreen. A um, couple of questions to get to on uh, the chat. Um, so I had one question on the private chat, which was, uh, which companies do you know of that do have the open environments and open cultures? So there, I suppose are there any standout businesses, Shereen, that you know of? <laughs> do you know how many times I get asked this and I never answer the question right? Only because, and I'll tell you why I never answer the question, because I always say I'm the wrong person to ask. Ask the black and brown colleagues what organisations they rate. Go by their voices, not mine, because I'm on the outside. So, you know, I, I get the best of. Like, they tell me all the good stuff that they're doing. I'm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then somebody else will come and slide into my DMs and go, you'll never believe what my organisation has done, to, you know, right? So there's an element of the public facade has got to match what's going on behind the scenes. What I will say, um, very briefly, is we have a, um, a four-level maturity model. It just it helps focuses leadership teams on like where they are really, not where they think they are. All I'll say to you is level one is compliance, right? So if you're a compliance organisation, you only deal with issues as and when it comes up, and it's policy-driven, right? So everything is about the policy says, and we'll deal with it as a policy thing, gross misconduct, disciplinary, all of that good stuff. The next level is an intent to be inclusive, which means you're already sold on the idea of inclusion, but you're still very generic in your language. So you still talk a lot about diversity and inclusion. You might use the terms BAME or ethnic minorities, but you don't talk about black colleagues. You don't talk about racism. You don't talk about racial equity. Level three is where there's a specific focus and and strategic commitment, I guess, with all of this. So you've got a plan. It's owned by the board. It's not a HR thing. You're very specific in the fact that you do want to address the disparities with black colleagues and other minoritized colleagues. You're very specific in your language. But the difference between that and a level four is that you haven't quite nailed the communication externally and you're not applying your influence within your ecosystem. A level four company has private and public accountability owned by the board, specific language, specific goals. They also hold their partners and suppliers to a certain standard and positively influence what they're doing in this space as a prerequisite of doing business with them. So I I know that didn't really answer the question, but I hope that does help in terms of what does good look like? Because it isn't just about everyone thinks like once you've had the conversation, that's it. And I'm like, no, 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 we've got more work to do. So that model is a really good way of helping because they go, oh, my goodness, like, you know, some people don't want to be a level four. They're quite happy to be level three, which is fine. I just hope we can move away from level one compliance because that's how racism will keep perpetuating if you're working in an organisation like that. Gotcha. Makes sense. And just going back to the chat, so, so Dee Perkins are, um, put a, uh, a note in the chat earlier. I'd be more interested to hear the ideas and solutions that are proposed, but more important, the real-life examples where change has been truly implemented. Otherwise, it's a rehash of discussions that have been going on for a long time. Do you have anything to comment on that, Shireen? Any? Yeah, I don't know the individual, and I don't know. I think you've got to be careful of jumping into solution mode, because I say, if you're one of these people, it's like, I know this issue. I know 
the context, I know all of that, then you can completely ignore that. The problem that we have, and this is about perpetuating more harm, is there are some people who are bored with the conversation about race. I'm not saying this is this individual, I'm just saying in broad terms. So they're bored of this conversation. They just want to move into action because I'm tired of hearing about it. But the problem is you have to allow people to share their lived experience. You have to allow people to have the conversation. And listen, I wish I didn't have to have the same conversations over and over again, but I'm still having the same conversations that I was last year. I talk to people who were involved in the civil rights movement in the 1960s and they're like still, they're like, look, I was a kid when this is happening. I can remember my parents talking about it and here I am saying the same thing. We can share that afterwards, the resource. Don't worry, I've got all of that. You can, we'll fire you off to somewhere where you can look at that. So I do think you have to be careful about why you're willing to jump into action. And action is having the conversation. I don't know why we think that's not an action. An action is having a conversation. An action is doing what Anine talked about, which is listening to the people who are impacted. And I think if you're of the mindset of that's not a, an action, I think you have to circle back and, and just sit with this for a moment because it is an action to listen to people that are impacted. It is an action to have the conversation. You still got to convert that into an action plan, but don't skip to the action plan without doing those stages because that's when you will fall, you'll come a cropper, as I like to say, because you'll do stuff that does look performative and tokenistic and people will call you out on that, you know? So that's, I know that's not like a straight answer, but that is just my response to that question. Appreciate that. Thanks, Shireen. Prima Lava uh, said earlier, there are so many things that are so powerfully said here. Thank you, Shireen. Accepting or rejecting a label is your choice and so many more. So thanks for your comment there. Got time for one or two more questions. I've got one more I'd like to ask, Shireen. So yeah, uh, again, obviously, I, you may, may have been able to notice, I, I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and I, I saw an article you shared from Keenan Malik from The Guardian around kind of the headline being, you either accept your racism or reveal your racism by not accepting it. What did you think of that, that, that kind of headline in that article? So the point he's making is there are some people who are deliberately sitting in their ignorance. So I always like to give, you know, where I can, I try to give everyone a pass, right? So I always say, like, until the death of George Floyd or whether it's George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, even Trayvon Martin, you know, years ago, whatever it is, technically, right, before the global protest, so I'm thinking about the resulting reaction that happened afterwards, we can all claim that we were asleep. Then we woke up. Okay, at that point. Now, everything that's happened in the US, in the UK, so when we start to look at not only the summer of last year, the beginning of this year with Capitol Hill, right? If that's not a great example of white privilege, I don't know what is to be, I mean, listen, there's a case study all in that, that whole sorry mess. So we had that going on. Then we had the media reaction and treatment of, of Meghan and, and Harry, right? So we've got that. Then we've got this race relations board, right? So we've got all these different things. And I'm just using examples. We've got all these different things that happen. If you're still in a space where you don't want to unpick any of this, you don't want to be part of the conversation, you want to purely jump to action to avoid feeling the discomfort because the safety in doing something so we can be busy doing something, then I would say that is deliberately sitting in ignorance. And I can just see a response from here. The conversation shouldn't stop. No, no, no. I'm not saying what I'm saying is all part of it. So I'm not saying that's not the action, but I can only talk from my experience. And I have many organizations that, are, that started this work last year and are having to restart it with me now because they didn't understand the problem. That's, that's the point I was making, Dean. Not that it's not about the conversations. I'm saying they didn't understand the problem. They were getting the wrong advice because it was still under diversity and inclusion and or they knee-jerked. And because they knee-jerked, because they were so keen to act, that they actually created more harm and they've now got to, I'm helping them unpick some stuff and go and ignore that, let's, let's go and do this, let's do this, let's do this. And that comes from being intentional. And unfortunately, from my perspective, I don't think enough leadership teams, there are some, and I have some good gold star individuals out there, who were not willing to sit in their discomfort and lead from a place of vulnerability and going, here are the things that I thought I knew. And actually I realize I don't. So now this is what we've got to do about it. And this is my personal reflections. That's far more powerful and it cuts through and they're off, you know, off they go. Like I just dip in and out, you know, when they need various bits and pieces, but it's a long haul. I probably won't see this issue solved in my lifetime or even my kid's lifetime, you know, but this is a new point for us, I think in history, in that we're now, for whatever reason, spending more time and being able to actually understand what the issue is. And even when I talk to people who've been doing this work for a long time, even they say that's the difference now, because they were the lone voices trying to educate. Now we've got so many things 
out there. You know, this Google is free. You know, the information is there. Thanks, Shireen. And Shireen, we're just coming up to two o'clock. So I think it'd be great just to talk about the, the summit you mentioned at the beginning and what, what the what the aim is and what, what, what that's going to look like. Yes. So just to say, like, so, you know, so D can't claim that I nicked it. <laughs> so it's actually called Advancing Racial Equity 4.0. And it's about converting awareness into action in brackets intentionally. Right. So intentional action, thoughtful know thought through what's right for the organization so it's specific for anybody that is even remotely involved in anything to do with inclusion or leading teams or um, equity it's a global one because I've got people from all over the world should be about a thousand people got some pretty cool sponsors to come and come and help and it's just about inspiring you know it's but it's inspiring for action rather than navel gazing, which I think is kind of what Dee's point was making. So, you know, this isn't about roundtable discussions. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's about, okay, tactically, what are some of the tactical things? What are some of the things that we need to think about and get in the right headspace so we don't fundamentally perpetuate more harm? That's what I don't want. I don't want Black colleagues who are already feeling a particular kind of way because of what's going on to fall victim for the fact that their organisation is not engaging them not addressing this head-on and 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 so um the summit is about you know different things people coming at it from different perspectives yes there will be data but presented in the right way to ask the right questions and to get people to think differently about what they do within their organization so yes it's the 23rd of september i think i did a post because i don't think that that many people were interested in like crazy people are like, oh yeah yeah we're gonna come so yeah it will be it'll be my first one i'll be emceeing though so you won't hear any keynotes from me i'm just there to kind of keep everyone ticking over oh, fantastic thanks shireen and shireen i think we're, we're just about to wrap up then so what's if um, anybody who's on here wants to reach out to you directly or on the podcast listens after what's the best way for them to do so so i'm always on linkedin as paul said so i'm always like apart from i've been very quiet today but normally i'm on linkedin my company website is hr-rewired.com so you can see what we do get a little bit more of an insight and then um, i have a home for all of the 140 plus videos that I've created, nearly 40 live conversations all sit on hr-rewired.tv. So I have my own TV platform as well. So I think somebody asked me about the maturity level. I have a video where I talk through all the different levels and there's a one page there as well. So if you go to hr-rewired.tv and you just click on watch, you'll, you'll, you'll see all the stuff there. So it's, it's all there. Fantastic. Thanks. For you. Look, I know how busy you are. So thanks That's so much for right. spending an hour of us today. Really, really appreciate it. No, you're it. welcome. You're welcome. I hope it was helpful. Thanks everyone else for attending. Um, next week, we're going to have Diana George, HR expert, on to talk about how to build a winning culture to attract and retain the best talents. So hopefully I'll see you all next week. But Shireen, thanks again. I hope welcome. everyone has a, has a top week. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers.